If you would turn with me into Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, would you be pleased now to open your word to our hearts and open our hearts to your word that we would know what we are to believe about you and what duty you ask of us. Father, indeed, we do love our Savior and our desire is to love him more and more. Would you, through your word and by your spirit, give us a growing understanding of Jesus and increase our love for him, we pray in his name. Amen. Wherever you turn these days is advertising. Remember, it used to be just magazines and newspapers, and then it was TV, and then billboards, and now if you have a smartphone, you can't read anything without having to to navigate through ads, advertisements. And I think I've picked up a couple of themes with advertising. One is, you deserve this. They play on fallen man's thought that he deserves something. So they they pick up, and you deserve this. But I've noticed uh, there's another theme, uh, and that is this, that you're getting a great deal for your money. You're getting a great value. It is a fabulous price for what you're getting. Now, in both of those, those themes are aimed at and clearly focused on you. It may be expensive, but you're worth it. Or rather, it's inexpensive, and you're getting a great deal. Imagine now an advertisement that shows up on the billboard on 7175 headed north into Cincinnati, that big billboard that that is an ad for something very, very expensive. That once you purchase it, you give it away. Now, there are not many ads like that because this is crazy, isn't it? It makes no sense. What a waste. Who does something like that? Well, we really don't actually have to imagine a scenario like that, because something like this did happen, and we'll see who did it as we take a look at the first 11 verses of Mark chapter 14. Now, where are we? As I said a moment ago when we introduced the Old and New Testament readings, we are now entering the passion narrative, passion being Latin for suffering. Jesus came into Jerusalem in chapter 11, and now he's entering those last few days in Jerusalem. For the last two weeks, as we looked at Mark chapter 13, we saw two horizons, uh, both a near horizon and a far horizon. The near horizon for the original audience would have been the uh, coming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and the far horizon being um, the uh, return of the Son of Man, the coming of the Son of Man. Well, today, there is a horizon. It's the immediate horizon. It is Jesus's death. Think with me now about how Mark has viewed Jesus and how Mark has told of Jesus's words in his ministry. Jesus has foretold his death on at least three occasions. Uh, 
Mark chapter 8, 31, chapter 9, 31, and chapter 10, verse 33. Three times he said he's going to suffer and die and be crucified and raised from the dead. And in doing this, Jesus makes it clear that he is totally aware of and in control of all of the events that are about to unfold. I was appreciated the comments others have made and how Lee prayed that that with our building situation, God is totally in control, absolutely in control. And we can trust and rest in that as we go forward. So Mark has a view, a correct view of Jesus being absolutely in total control of what is unfolding. But Mark also has a view of man, specifically unbelieving man. Men are plotting to kill Jesus. We see that all the way back in chapter 3, again in chapter 11 and chapter 12. Why? Why are men plotting to kill Jesus? Because they refuse to listen to the words of Jesus, as we saw in the parable of the soils in chapter 4. And they refuse to believe in Jesus because they have evil hearts, as we saw in chapter 7. Here we are now at the beginning of the passion narrative, the betrayal, arrest, condemnation, and execution of Jesus. Join with me now as I read the first 11 verses of Mark chapter 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Our passage today is a classic Markan sandwich with an inner section surrounded by an outer section. Now in arranging his material like this, Mark is making an all-important point without saying a word. The stark contrast between love and hate, good and evil, loyalty and And betrayal. On the inside is a description of love for and devotion to Jesus, and it is surrounded by a description of the betrayal of Jesus. We're going to start with what's on the outer 
outside and then work our way to the inside. And in doing so, we will examine three attitudes toward Jesus, theirs, hers, and ours. But first, we need to make a few comments about the theological significance of the death of Jesus. Mark is helping us answer the question, why does Jesus have to die? Here at the beginning in the first couple of verses, you hear about the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and Mark is rolling them into one. Remember the Passover given by God to his people to commemorate the Exodus, and we read that in Exodus 12, 1 through 28. The Passover was there to remind God's people how he had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. With the actual um, Passover and the Passover meal, Israel could only be saved by killing a lamb at twilight, eating the flesh with bitter herbs symbolizing slavery, and unleavened bread symbolizing the affliction of a hasty flight, and then smearing blood on the doorpost. And when God saw the blood on the doorpost, he passed over those homes, and the angel afflicted death to the Egyptians. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was one week long, and it was symbolizing a breaking with the past and, an, and the commitment to a new start. The Feast of Passover, which the Israelites celebrated, always involved the killing of a lamb and the eating of lamb as a way to remember. So what is Mark doing in setting the stage with It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's preparing his reader, he's preparing us to see that Jesus is being presented as the final and ultimate Passover lamb. Okay, let's take a look at their attitude. Their attitude is one of betrayal. We see that in verses 1 and 2 and 10 and 11. The crust, as it were, of the the bread, the the bread of the sandwich. Here, the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes, they have been looking for a way to arrest and stop Jesus, but he has foiled them thus far in every effort. They have been unable to catch Jesus on a point of Old Testament law or to alienate him from the people. But now they are seeking a stealthy, a sly, a private way to do what? to destroy him. We read that all the way back in chapter 3, verse 6. Don't think that Jesus is somehow um, inconsequential. They plotted on how to destroy him. But interestingly, they're doing it out of the public eye because they are afraid in chapter 11, we read they, they didn't, when they challenged Jesus' authority and Jesus, as it were, shut them up, it says they were afraid of the people and couldn't respond. In chapter 12, they didn't take an action because they feared the people. They are evil cowards. But notice, it's not going to be a legitimate arrest, but rather more, more clearly a seizure. It is fueled and driven by a hatred of Jesus, not somehow to arrest him for the public good. Here's the great irony. The law keepers are going to break the law. Our law enforcement here at Florence's police department, why are they here? To protect and serve. 
for the religious leaders of Israel, they indeed are about protecting and serving themselves. So that's at the front end of our text. And at the back end is not a religious leader, but a disciple, Judas Iscariot, who is going to provide what they were looking for. And what did Judas offer to do? Well, the context suggests a betrayal in a location went away from the crowds. Why? Why is Judas going to do this? Well, there's no explanation given in Mark as to why Judas chooses to betray Jesus. Other texts help us understand that. Notice that he is looking for, he sought an opportunity, a chance to betray Jesus instead of watching himself, instead of staying awake, instead of being on his guard as we saw in the previous chapter. Notice that the betrayal begins in Jesus' inner circle because proximity to Jesus does not guarantee faithfulness to Jesus. Well, that's the outside story of their attitude toward Jesus. Let's now go on the inside of the story and let's compare and contrast. Hers. Her attitude is one of love and devotion. Love for Jesus and devotion to Jesus. We read that, and while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came. Bethany is the home of Simon, the former leper. And according to John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, we believe this woman to be none other than Mary, of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Mary, who, who Jesus said that he was the resurrection and the life, and indeed, she indeed saw that as her brother was raised from the dead. Look at the action in verse 3. She takes a costly action. This was worth a year's wages, 300 denarii, a year's wages of a common laborer. Nard is an aromatic oil extracted from a root that's native to India. It's a, most likely a family heirloom. It's valuable. And notice what she does. She comes in with this flask of ointment, very costly, and she broke the flask. Her action is irrevocable. She broke the bottle. She didn't twist off the top. She didn't unzip it only to be zipped back. She broke it. It could not be reused. It's all or nothing. Here is the size of her gift. It is all. Why? Again, we don't see directly the motive. Why would she do this? And yet, was it not gratitude for Jesus raising her brother from the dead? She is grateful and devoted to this Savior. She takes action and indeed others react. And we see that in verses 4 and 5. There is an indignant response. And it underlines the remaining hardness of heart in people. These people scold her. They rebuke her harshly. And this idea of scolding has this idea of to flaring the nostrils with anger. 
in scolding her, they demean not only the woman, but Jesus as well. They are saying he is unworthy of such extravagance. Their attitude indicated that they understood all too little of the outpouring of love in Jesus' heart towards sinners that we've been seeing chapter after chapter as we've been going through Mark. Jesus' love for sinners. Here they react and they present a grudging spirit towards Christ and his work. And my friends, that's always a bad sign. The presence of a grudging spirit. She takes action. These unnamed people, disciples and others in this home react. But then Jesus speaks. And notice, he issues a command. He asks a question and then makes a statement. Jesus rebukes them. Notice this. They... And they scolded her, but in beginning in verse 6, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. Notice, Jesus is not rebuking them for wanting, for not wanting to care for the poor, but rather for getting the timing wrong. The poor are present throughout history and the love of God must be expressed in love for them. But at this unique moment in the history of redemption, God himself was present and about to be crucified. He commends the woman for doing a beautiful, right, a good thing. Here's the joyful appreciation of Jesus. He commends her for doing what she could. She did something, whereas her critics did nothing. Her gift is a beautiful expression of love which possessed a deeper significance than she could have possibly understood. We see this. But she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. His preparation for death involved being anointed by this woman. Here's some irony present in our text. The religious leaders and a disciple of Jesus, all who are supposedly trusted men, conspire to kill God's anointed. While a woman who's not supposed to know anything in that culture in particular anoints God's anointed. Remember in chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, what did we see there? A poor widow, an unnamed poor widow who gives all that she had into the temple treasury. And notice this unnamed woman who breaks this valuable jar, an alabaster jar of ointment and pours it on Jesus' head. Here's a woman before and a woman now after. And these women are an encouragement and a blessing to Jesus. One commentator says this, How vastly different that woman's gift from this woman's. Yet from Jesus they receive the same commendation. Faith and discipleship are not ideal realms. What we might like to be and do, they are absolute realities who we are, and what we are able to give. The poor widow gives, 
what she had and all that she had. And this woman gives all that she has. And yet, interestingly, if you put it in the context of the Bible, this woman really did give to the poor, did she not? Because Jesus, though rich, for our sake, what? Became poor, as Paul writes to the Corinthian church. Here is another glimpse of what discipleship is. The Christian life is neither holding back nor turning back. Because in a few weeks, we're going to see the disciples, all of them, turn back. And yet these women at the temple and now in a home don't hold back. They give. And look with me at verse 9. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Jesus concludes with a pronouncement that matches the intensity of the earlier anger and response of the people in the home. As we read verse 9, Jesus' words are fulfilled because today, on April the 2nd, 2017, in Florence, Kentucky, we are remembering her action. And its significance. Do you notice Jesus' surprise, astonishing, extraordinary conclusion? His death will be part of the gospel. The good news. There is no good news apart from the death of Jesus. Oh, how he himself asked if there could be another way. And oh, how we also ask for other ways. There's no other way other than through the death of Jesus because they cannot be separated and they must be proclaimed. And if you look at the early sermons of the church in Acts, it was about Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. His life, I have three points for my sermon. Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection. Jesus chooses to illustrate the nature of Christian discipleship by showing us people like the woman in the temple and here this woman in the home who act immodestly, zealously, animated by great thanksgiving, great love for and devotion to Him. Remember what she has done. Important. It's important. What she has done in response to what Jesus had done or has promised to do. It's a life of gratitude she's beginning to live. Those of you may be familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism, there are three parts, guilt, grace, and gratitude. The guilt of our sin, the grace found in Jesus, and a life of obedience and gratitude. A life of love for and devotion to Jesus. Since Jesus places the emphasis on remembering what she has done. Let's now take a closer look at what she has done and ask ourselves. What should be our attitude toward Jesus? What should be our attitude toward Jesus? And let's assume here that the scriptures teach, and they do, that a Christian loves and is devoted to Jesus. We've looked at their attitude, we've looked at her attitude, let's now take a look at our attitude. 
And our attitude is to be observed. First of all, you see that love and devotion to Jesus is extravagantly costly. Here is an act of sacrificial generosity. And the implication is we can never give too much to Jesus. And this goes far beyond the realm of finances and money because it is often very expensive to obey Christ in terms of social and emotional capital as well as financial. If you simply go out there and tell the truth, act with integrity and purity, if you go about forgiving people, it may cost you the respect of others. It may cost you freedom. But the point here is this, nothing should be of comparable worth to Christ. Everything else we own is expendable. Well, not only is love for and devotion to, Christ, to Jesus extravagantly costly, it's also self-forgetful. This action that she took is scandalous. It's not proper. It defies convention. And most people out there among us will say, hey, religion is all right if done in moderation, but don't get carried away. Because radical devotion to Christ is looked upon with a frown. People may consider us fanatics, over the top. You know, a number of years ago, I met with a man who had been a part of Grace and Peace for a time, but then he was no longer. And I asked him, why? Why would you want to leave? And he said, well... These, a lot of folks started talking about Jesus too much, and, and they started um, really seeing that you had to align your life to his teachings, and he goes, I, I'm just not there. I, I, I'm just not like that. Now, you know what I did? I was both very sad and very glad at the same time. I was sad that this man had not been drawn to see Jesus as more beautiful and believable than anything but I was also glad that the witness internal in this church was such that Jesus was being exalted and glorified and loved and served and followed. I was sad and I was glad at the same time. She was radically devoted because her love was centered on Jesus and she was not in the least bit self-conscious and didn't care what other people thought. She was seeking first the kingdom of God because she was seeking first the king. Like Mary in Luke chapter 10, she is concerned for no one and nothing else but Jesus alone. J.C. Ryle, the great Baptist uh, or Anglican bishop of the 1800s in England said this, quote, let charges like these not disturb us, if we hear them made against us because we strive to serve Christ, let us bear them patiently and remember that they are as old as Christianity itself. Let us pity those who make such charges against believers. A cold heart makes a slow hand. If a man once understands the sinfulness of sin and the mercy of Christ in dying for him, he will never think anything too good or too costly to give to Christ. I think here Ryle is picking up on something that Thomas Watson, a Puritan, said almost two centuries earlier in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance. He said this, 
Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. To the believer, sin increasingly becomes bitter and Christ increasingly becomes sweet. And we have a picture of that in our passage. So love and devotion to Jesus is extravagantly costly. It is self-forgetful, but it is also wholehearted. Her act of anointing his head was intimate and personal. Belief is not just intellectual, it is wholehearted. Here we see the engagement of her whole heart, her emotions, her actions. There's an act of deep love and devotion. There's a lavishness of generosity and a boldness of her deed and where Do they come from? My friends, she is in love with Jesus. Those of you that have maybe experienced human love, it makes you do crazy things, doesn't it? She loves Jesus. This love is extravagantly costly, self-forgetful, wholehearted, and radically vulnerable. In losing all her savings and credibility, she was nonetheless trusting that she wouldn't be shortchanged in the transaction because she saw Christ as greater than whatever else she had. In other words, she made a great deal. She gave up something worth a lot for something absolutely worth far more. As she emptied her net worth on Jesus, she became radically dependent upon Jesus. By her actions, she could no longer trust in having that jar of expensive ointment on the shelf at home. She couldn't trust in finances or even in social capital for her security. She had to trust in Jesus. Most of us feel that if we obey, Jesus will not take care of our needs. And so what do we do? We disobey. In looking at all these characteristics of love for and devotion to Jesus, one commentator writes this, quote, These are all marks of a person who is not following Jesus for what they get, but for who he is. She is not following him in order to get things, but in order to get him. Her critics found Jesus useful, but she found him beautiful. There was a limit to what they, that is others, would give him. But there was no limit to what she wanted to give him. In just a moment, we're going to walk away from this text. But I don't think we can do it without asking at least two questions. First, who is Jesus? Remember, it's Mark's shortest catechism question. Who is Jesus? Notice that Jesus is at the center of this text. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. In placing himself above concern for the poor, Jesus is placing himself above the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Children, where would that put Jesus at the level? 
If it's above loving your neighbor at yourself, Jesus is saying it's at the level of loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Once again, we are forced to ask, who is this man who says such things and does such things? Remember at the end of the storm on the sea, the disciples say, who is this? that the winds and waves obey. Who is this that a woman would give such a lavish, extravagant, I could care less what other people think, gift to Jesus? Who is Jesus? Well, remember, Mark has already told us in the first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And second, Who are we? Which, of course, is another way to express the question, how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? Did you notice how the nature of the contrast between the people in our text drive us to examine our attitude toward Jesus and ask the question first, who are we like? Are we like those on the outside or the one on the inside? Are we like those who are deeply grateful to God who know they owe Jesus a great debt and express it through love and devotion? Or rather, are we like those who believe that they have no obligation to Jesus at all? At best, they're trying to remain neutral. Are we those who love Jesus only in order to get things from him? In other words, Jesus is useful in my life? Or rather, are we the ones who love Jesus for who he is and for what he has done for our salvation? In other words, yes, he's useful, but more than that, he's beautiful, as we sang, beautiful Savior earlier. My friends, our text has presented us with another facet to the question Who is Jesus? And it's given us another way to express who he is. But it's also presented us with a question. Who are we? Who are you? Because our lives reveal our relationship with Jesus. Our lives, our thoughts, our words, our actions display who or what we love. Who or what we are devoted to. My friends, we have seen another picture of Jesus, who Jesus is. It's been helping us answer the question, who is Jesus? Ask yourself the question this afternoon, who are you? Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, would you be pleased to give us the answer to that question that we ask ourselves, who are we? by giving us a growing awareness that we are a people who have been radically loved and served by Jesus to the extent of his life for our life. And we are a people who, though not perfectly, yet earnestly desire to live our lives in service and gratitude and obedience and joy to him. Oh, Father, would you enable this congregation of your people to encourage one another 
in our love for and devotion to Jesus, that it would be continually, extravagantly costly, self-forgetful, wholehearted, and radically vulnerable. Oh, Father, we thank you for Jesus, for who he is and what he has done for his people. May we grow in our understanding and our appreciation of his person and work, for we pray in his name. Amen.